We're going to take the next four weeks to explore a particular book in the Bible, the book of Esther. If you didn't get outline notes that will help you, then just raise your hand and one of the stewards will bring these to you. We're going to do four weeks on this book, and oh, what a book, oh, what a story it is. It has all the ingredients of a great story, and indeed, a movie. This could make a great movie. This is how it goes. A young, disadvantaged girl, who is both beautiful and gifted, comes into a position where through intrigue and infiltration, at risk of her own life, she's able to save a whole people group from a very evil man. Any of you here ever seen the Hunger Games? It's the same backstory in the Hunger Games as this one. That's where they got it from. It's something that is full of bravery and adventure and destiny and love and threat and suspense. And it takes place in a very exotic and opulent surroundings. And thankfully, though I don't want to ruin it for you, it ends with very happy ending. So read it all over these next four weeks. Read it a few times. You could read it all in one week and then just keep reading it. I guess as many of you know, and I said this last week, this is one of the books in the Bible, and there's only two, and the other one is up for debate. It doesn't mention the name God. It doesn't mention anywhere in this book, which is not insignificant. It's part of the style. It's part of the structure of it. In fact, you don't find that there's any worship mentioned in here. You don't find that there's any prayer, although fasting is mentioned. You don't find that there's any prophetic vision or word or miracle or vision. And yet, for those that have eyes to see, when you read it, you can see the hand of God orchestrating and arranging divine appointments that are going on through invitations that happen, through being in the right place, that he organizes all that's going on behind the scenes. If we had a verse that could maybe be the companion verse with this book from the New Testament, it would be this well-known one in Romans 8, 28. It says this, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. God is at work behind the scenes, even though there's nothing that we can visibly say that is a, 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 a miraculous moment. I do have, if I'm honest, I do have a concern for Christians who are constantly in pursuit of the sensational and in doing so lose sight of the everyday ordinary miracles. How dare I put that word in front of miracle. The, the, the orchestrating, the organizing of God so that so much of what we experience, even though we don't see it, is the controlling hand of God. I'll tell you this. I am glad that God didn't answer some of my prayers. Because if I look back and he'd have answered them, they would not have been what I demanded certain things, but thank God he didn't answer them. Why did I spoke to a lady this week who was on Alpha. She said, it doesn't feel like God's come through and answered my prayers. And my question to her was, how do you know? You don't know yet whether he's answered your prayers. He may have answered in a way that didn't come down according to your list and the way you wanted it, but he's a God who's in control. There is an election going on this week somewhere in the world. Anyone heard about it? I don't know what the outcome is going to be. I may say a few things about it later or, or an allusion to it. But 
the reality is God's in control. We believe in that. This is what it says in the ESV study Bible at the beginning of the book of Esther by, by way of an introduction. Hear this. Esther is part of a much larger story that runs all the way from Abraham to Christ and through him to the church. If Haman, who's a baddie we're going to be introduced to in this story, had succeeded, the Jewish people as a whole would have been destroyed. And the story of God's saving work in and through Abraham's descendants would have come to an end. There would have been no fulfillment in Christ and therefore no gospel and no Christian church. Christians should read the book of Esther not just as a story about the Jews but as part of their own heritage. We wouldn't be here if this hadn't happened. Even today, Jews celebrate a festival called Purim which is related to the events that are recorded in the book of Esther. We don't have to celebrate that one. Harm you if you do, but Jews do it. And I looked it up on a website, Jewish festivals, and this is what it says about Purim. It says, The jolly festival of Purim is celebrated every year on the 14th of the Hebrew month of Adar, late winter, early spring. It commemorates the salvation of the Jewish people in ancient Persia from Haman's plot to, quotes, Destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, infants and women, in a single day as recorded in the book of Esther. There is a spirit of revelry and fun on Purim that is unparalleled on the Jewish calendar. He writes, if there were ever a day to let loose and just be Jewish, this is it. I'd like to suggest this. If there was ever a day, if there was ever a book to let loose and just be Christian, Esther's the one to celebrate it. Of the freedom, of the orchestrating, of the organizing, of the sovereignty, of how God is in control. So I want to read, I'd love to read all of it to you, but I'm just going to read the first chapter as quickly as I can. Uh, and then next week we'll go on chapters three and four as well as we go through the four-week series. Queen Vashti Deposed is the title in the NIV. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 120 provinces stretching from India to Kush. That would be modern day Ethiopia. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. Did you get that? Six months of partying. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days. So this is on the end of the 180 in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords, white linen and purple materials, silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. 
By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink without restriction. This is the ultimate free bar, guys. There's never been another one like it. For the king instructed all the wines with stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was high in spirits from wine drunk, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. And when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to king, the king. And they said to him, The seven nobles of Persia and Medea, who had special access to the king and who were the highest of the, the kingdom, according to the law, he asked what must be done to Queen Vashti. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Memucan replied in the presence of the king and nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and all the peoples of all the province of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. Oh, yeah. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. And also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Mamukam proposed. This king is the king of a superpower. They do everything with pomp and ceremony and grandeur. There were four capital cities. This party, six months long. There is something going on. When they served wine, they didn't just serve it in nice glasses. They had goblets of gold. Every single one was different. This was an incredibly opulent, successful superpower. And this king, Xerxes, was the king across all of this region that was mentioned. 127 provinces. The problem is, as we will see in a moment, the inner character and strength of this king does not match his outward display of power. There is something inside. He's showing off. He's showing all the nobles. Look at all that I've got. He's parading it before him. This is King Yung on on steroids. He's just so boastful and so proud. Six months. And then lastly, a little party of just seven days for everyone in the province. He's currying favor. He's doing stuff, but there's a gap between what he should have been doing and what he was doing. What this king of all of Persia and Media should have been doing is preparing for battle, 
is ruling with humility and justice, but rather he's showing off. He's showing off his wealth and he's showing off what he can do. And there's a gap between what he should have been doing and who he really was. And then we get to that last verse that's in your notes here. It's just a brief mention of Queen Vashti. I would like to suggest to you that the writer, who we don't know who it is, it may have been Nehemiah, it may have been Mordecai, who's the uncle of Esther that we read later on. It could have been, we don't know, some didn't want a, ma- a, a woman's name to be the hero, but it's a woman who's the hero of this story ultimately. And we find that at the end it just says here, Queen Vashti also had a banquet for the women in the royal palace. So he's opulent and he's extravagant and he's showing off and Queen Vashti also had a party. What happens is, to show his ultimate strength and his greatest possession, he decides when he's drunk, note that, he decides that he wants to bring in his greatest possession to show what a great man he is. His trophy wife. He's now going to bring in this beautiful trophy wife. Now I know this is hard to believe. Can you imagine that in the 21st century this kind of thing could happen? That men could objectify women and speak of them as conquests and irresistible to their power and money? Can you imagine that happening today? As if. Can you imagine a society where the men brag about their sexual exploits and how hot their wife is? Beyond imagination. But he wants to show her off in front of guys who've been drinking for months and days. This is what most commentators think. It says, and we read it, he wanted to bring her in with her royal crown. The suggestion is this. That's all he wanted her to wear. That he was going to bring her out, but only in a royal crown. Absolutely stark naked, except for the royal crown. Wow. Some suggest she may have been pregnant. We don't know. She does have a son. She might have been embarrassed coming out just because she was pregnant, but most agree it was probably that she was going to come before all these drunken men with nothing but a crown. What a shame. What a shame then and what a shame today that in particular in regard to women, though by no means exclusively, there's a lie that goes like this. Who you are is how you look. Who you are is how you look. It's a lie. Who you are is not first and foremost related to how you look. Who you are is first and foremost related to who you are as a human being made in the image and likeness of God. 
That's why we respect all people, correct? That's why they're worthy of respect. That's why we send shoeboxes to places where children are not have the privileges that we have or in places where they may not be highly educated or, or, or that they have the privileges that many... Because their identity is not related to what they have or what they look like. It's who they are as children made in the image and likeness of God. And that's what is important. It's not... I love that song. We, we are going to sing it at the end. I didn't know we were until after the first service. I'd forgotten. I love that song, You're a Good, Good Father. But I don't just like the bit, you're a good, good father. I like the bit that reminds me, in the middle of a worship song, it's who I am. It's who I am. I'm a child of the Most High God. And the most important thing about you and me is not what we look like. It's who we are related to God our Father and in Jesus Christ. Hello? That's the most important thing. But this king... King Xerxes, the most powerful man in the world, he thinks parading his wife because she's so beautiful and in the nutty and just with a crown on her, he thinks this is a good idea. And here's my first point that I, I want to get over to. It's a great revelation. I don't know whether you can stand the weight of this, but it will change your life if you can just get it. He was making very silly mistakes. And this is how I want to apply it to us. I want to say to King Xerxes in the passage, but I want to say to us, ready? Here's the blank in your notes. Guys, don't be stupid. Don't be stupid. Xerxes is being stupid. This is not a good decision. And later on, there's going to be another poor decision that we read about. That somehow he thinks, listening to these wise men who say, banish your wife. Because all the other women will follow her otherwise. And they'll respect their husbands if you, if you banish your wife and get rid of her. Oh, yeah. Really? He makes some stupid decisions. Why didn't someone just say to him, time out, Xerxes, have a coffee, lie down, wait till tomorrow morning, but no, bring her out. And so the edict goes, bring her out. Anybody here right now, you need to think, where am I being stupid? No need to respond to the appeal. Where am I being stupid? I don't know. It might not be related to wine. Although if it is, you do know wine is a mocker, don't you? You will make stupid mistakes when you're drunk. So that's one thing. But maybe there are other things. What about this? I, I sat down and thought, where have I made some stupid mistakes in my life? Because I've made them. Anybody else with me? I've made stupid mistakes... By wanting to be right. Anyone else ever done that? I've, I've gone into an argument and I've lost a friendship by wanting to be right. Who cares? Maybe I should have. Some of you, like me, just need to practice being wrong. Just, just practice being wrong. It's something. Find an area you can be wrong. I've, I've lost relationships just by wanting to be right. How about making stupid decisions like this? Always wanting to be liked. Anyone ever done that? Oh, less of us. See, you don't care. There. I, that's good. I, I can say a few things to you then. You don't care if you're ever like. I, I like to be liked. And I've made some stupid decisions because I just didn't say no to some people. I have a friend who couldn't say no. Actually, he wasn't so much a friend as a Bible college lecturer. He was honest with me one day or to us as a class. He said, 
He said, I struggle saying no. So this is what he did. He went down to the Yorkshire Moors and he used to practice with his dog saying no to his dog. He said, the poor dog, I can't remember the dog's name, let's call it Dave. And he'd look at Dave, sorry Dave, you just caught my eye. And he just said, I used to practice on the Yorkshire Moors saying no. And the poor dog would look at him. He said, I just needed to hear myself saying no because I couldn't say it to people because I wanted to be liked. Are you making some stupid decisions? I'm not saying you're stupid. I'm struggling to not say that, but I'm struggling to say that you make stupid or I do stupid decisions. Is it revenge? Is it competitiveness? Is it speed? You're just going too fast. Here, here's, here's a bit of wisdom. My dad used to say this to me. He said, if you can wait a week before you make a decision, wait a week. Could have saved myself a real headache by just not going so fast. Don't be stupid. So the edict goes out, bring the queen. So you can hear the announcement through the court, can't you? Bring Queen Vashti, bring Queen Vashti, bring Queen Vashti, bring Queen Vashti, bring Queen Vashti. And Queen Vashti, to the most powerful man in the world, she says, no, 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 no. And it goes all the way through to the king's ears. Queen Vashti said no. Someone said no to the king. I want to say this to you. I believe she was right. Parading her? Even if she was clothed. But let's think she wasn't. And with just a crown on her head. She was right to say, I'm not going to become a piece of meat for all your men to look at and just mock and, oh, isn't she beautiful? No. No. Oh, she was so brave. So brave. And the first thing I wanted to say to you, and I'm only going to say two things to you, is this. Don't be stupid. second thing I want to say to you is, do, and I couldn't have said it over there, I had to walk over here, do be brave. Queen Vashti was brave. When we read of Esther in the next few chapters, we'll find out she was brave as well. In fact, at one point she goes and she says to Mordecai, her uncle, if I perish by going before the king, I perish. If I die, I die. How brave is that? And Vashti here, I think she's demonstrating something that maybe the other women call. Do be brave. Here's a question I want to say to you, to some of you in your bravery. Where is it right now? You need to be saying no. Out of bravery. Now hear me. I'm not saying say no out of the sake of saying no. I know some people like that. That's being stupid. All right? I'm not saying just say no, just for, just for the sake of it. I mean, for, for this sake, for righteousness' sake, for the kingdom's sake, for integrity's sake, in the workplace, where are you needing to say no? For morality's sake, I mean for God's sake, I mean for your sake, I mean for your family's sake. Where, like Vashti, are you needing to be brave and say no? 
Oh, and I'd love to say to you, because if you say no, everything will work out just fine. You'll get promoted in work. You'll do well in life. Just say no. Vashti lost her position. But we're talking about her thousands of years later. And we're not mocking her, we're saying she's a heroine. Because in the plan and purpose of God, God used her bravery. God used her in order to demonstrate something that maybe other women like an Esther had to follow in the footsteps of. Where do you need to be brave? I can't guarantee to you how it's going to work out. But I do want to say to you, do be brave. I was standing at the coffee shop here a few weeks ago. And a lady from our church, she was in the first celebration, lovely lady. She came alongside me and we started talking. We talked about finishing this building, how much it had cost. And these were the words she said to me. And she said it so lovingly because she's a lovely lady. She said, oh, Steve, you've been so brave. Do you know how I felt when she said that? And I do appreciate her saying it. This is how I felt. I felt a fraud. And I went away appreciating her saying, you've been brave. But I thought to myself as I went away, if only you knew. If only you knew. If only you know that every single day I have to fight fear and step out into bravery. I don't think I've known a day, certainly since this project, but even before, where somewhere fear hasn't raised its ugly head and I've thought, oh, it's just too much. Just had a text through from my daughter who's a Hillsong this morning. They've raised, they've had an offering, their vision offering, they've raised 750,000 pounds. That's good, isn't it? I think per head, we've probably given more. And I get up here regularly, I said a few weeks ago, I do believe that there are 10 people that would give 10,000 pounds every single time to reach 100,000, the rest of us give the rest. Do you think that that's just easy and I just get up and say, hey, every time I mention that, something in my stomach goes boom. It turns. Because I have to choose. Don't fear whether you'll offend. Just say it. Be brave. There's a writer called John Acuff, A-C-U-F-F, writes in the New York Times. Written a book called Do Over. And he writes in his book this. It's a mistake to think you will beat fear. Hear this carefully now, because you could sound like I'm preaching heresy. He says this, and by beat, I mean have zero fear for the rest of your life. When we believe that it's possible, we shame ourselves every time fear comes in. The truth is, you will be afraid, just like me, just like everyone else. Having fear isn't failure. Did you hear that? 
Having fear isn't failure. Holding on to fear is. There is a huge difference between those two. One is natural and often out of your control. The other is largely in your control. It's like getting the mail. Fear shows up in the mailbox. You've got a choice. To throw it away as soon as you walk in or to open it, obsess over it, memorize it and eventually frame it for proper display over the fireplace. Forget that. You will be afraid, but you don't have to stay afraid. We must face fear. Why are there so many commands in the Bible to fear not? We think it's because, you know, we just need to know it lots. It's because the opportunity to fear are numerous. Every day. Fear not. We have to deal with it by looking at it. We have to some way be willing to stay in this place of uncomfortableness. Because comfort will kill us, guys. We have to somehow get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Musicians, would you come back now? Let me tell you this this story. This happened recently. Hamish, who's on the sound desk up here, it was his wedding recently, and, and for his stag do, so Hamish is, what, 26? Yeah. For his stag do, one of the things they did was invite a group of guys to the velodrome, the Olympic velodrome in London, to go around the velodrome. Now, some of you know I cycle, but I've never done that. I initially thought, no, I won't go because it's full of 26-year-olds and, and I, I, that's going to be too tough. But then a couple of the older guys who are like 10, 15 years younger than me, they, they signed up as well. I thought, I'll go and I'll be the granddaddy of the, the event. So we went and, and if, if any of you have been to the Olympic Velodrome, it's steep. It's much steeper than it looks on the TV. And not only that, but the bikes that you're on the fixed wheels so you you can't stop cycling you can't stop the pedal go around in fact if you're going fast and you try to not only will you fall off but you could break your leg because it's forcing you to go around and I thought well I'm going to try it steep get on the bike I can't stop can't stop there's no brakes on it you can't pull brakes you can't take your feet off in fact if you stop going around not only is it steep so as if you stop the the, the, the inertia of you having stopped you'll slip down so I'm going this is hard this is hard in my mind and I'm on my bike and a memory came back to me when I was eight I was cycling down a a road in in the Wirral called Rabimere Rabimere Road trying to get my sister trying to catch my sister going eight years of age legs as fast as I can and the road went to the side. And I, so I'm, I'm cycling. I went to the side, but I didn't stop pedaling. And my pedal hit the floor. And I came off. And this is the memory I have. The first time I smelled TCP was after that event. So if I smell TCP now, I'm right back to when they took me to the chemist because I came off my bike, scratched all my face, went to the chemist, and they put TCP on my face. Stung to high heaven. And it hurt. And my dad called me to one side afterwards. He said, Steve... Whenever you go around a corner, stop cycling, lift your pedal up, and go around. So you lift your pedal up, just stop going around, just go around like that. Because otherwise, if you keep pedaling and you go around, it'll hit the ground. That's not what you do at the velodrome. You're going around, and you've got to keep pedaling. And I'm going around, honestly, this memory came back to me, and I'm listening to my dad in my head say, 
lift up your pedal and stop cycling. And I'm saying inside myself, I can't. If I stop, I'll hurt my leg and fall down. And I can hear my dad, and I can hear what the instructor said. And my dad said to me, and I've got my dad's voice, pick up the pedal, stop cycling. And the other guy says, keep cycling, keep cycling. And I'm thinking, no. And I was scared stiff. Because I've got this memory in my mind. If I keep pedaling, I'll fall off. And now I've been introduced to something new. If I don't keep pedaling, I'll fall off. And I could feel my legs shaking. I was the slowest guy around there. I could feel my legs shaking. And they don't know this. But when I was going around on the other side, I'm going, don't stop pedaling. And I hear my dad saying, stop pedaling, stop pedaling, don't stop pedaling. And I've got this fight. And I have to say it out loud to help myself. I had to embrace the discomfort and the moment I was frightened. Because if I fall off, it's going to hurt. What right now have you got in your head that's saying, don't stop, don't stop, don't stop. But there's another voice that's saying to you, stop, stop, stop. Where do you need to be brave and say, someone's saying to you, say yes, say yes, say yes. But the other voice is saying, no. You've got to be brave enough to say no. Where is it right now that in a marriage you're thinking of capitulating and getting out and you need to hear the voice that says, keep paddling, keep going. Don't get out of that marriage. Stay in there. Be brave. Be brave. Be courageous. I'm going to step out and I'm going to go again. What do you need to say no to? Where do you need to stop being stupid? Acting stupid. What do you need to say? It's who I am. I'm going to be brave. Let's stand together.